Welcome, fellow true crime enthusiasts, to today's case file, The Graveyard Killer, the story of Larry Dwayne Hall. Welcome to Body of Crime, your go-to true crime podcast where we plunge headfirst into the gripping world of criminal mysteries. Join your hosts, Jose Medina, Crystal Garcia, and Alicia Anaya, as we deliver the full stories, immersing you in the heart of each case. With spine-chilling cases, in-depth analysis, captivating interviews, and a comprehensive examination of the evidence, embark on a thrilling journey with us as we explore bone-chilling cases from around the globe. Whether you're a seasoned true crime enthusiast or a fresh face in the genre, we guarantee to keep you on the edge of your seat. So put on your detective hat, grab your notepad, and get ready to dive into the thrilling world of body of crime. Between the years of 1980 through 1994, more than 50 white and Hispanic females ranging in ages from 10 to 28 mysteriously vanished across 14 states. An unlikely individual immediately popped up as a potential suspect as he voluntarily stepped forward with a confession about several of the disappearances. The authorities quickly dismissed the man as a mere serial confessor, attributing his claims to a troubled mind marked by recantations and an unmistakable air of peculiarity. The serial confessor, who the police identified as Larry Dwayne Hall, was known throughout his town as being a bit strange and a little bit off, but overall they identified him as harmless. No one suspected Hall. Even when he came forward with details about the missing girls that authorities had not shared with the public, somehow Halt was able to hide in the open. The town's suspicion of him dissuaded by his awkward social strangeness and what appeared to be a diminished intellect. Hall found a way to move in the shadows of his small town life where neighbors and residents just ignored him. Besides his Burnside mutton chops, which he wore proudly, he was otherwise unordinary. His passion for history presented in his participation in Civil War and Revolutionary War reenactments, which coincided eerily with the locations of the women's disappearances. His odd and strange demeanor became a camouflage, rendering him invisible to those who believed he was either too stupid to commit the atrocious acts of kidnappings, rapes, and murders, successfully getting away with, or not violent enough. They would all be proven wrong. Despite Hall's confessions and the mounting evidence linking him to the unspeakable acts of strangulation, mutilation, and post-mortem sexual assault, he almost managed to continue slipping through the fingers of Lady Justice. As the local police fumbled through failed interrogations and spent time driving Hall around looking for makeshift graves, he claimed that he had left some of the women buried, never finding them and eventually recanting his confessions. As we take a peek into the psyche of Larry Dwayne Hall's dark mind, exploring the twisted path 
that gave birth to the perversions that would be expressed as sexual sadism and necrophiliac behavior, you will find a man who was a lot smarter than most gave him credit for. Hall used the power of underestimation to not only carry out a series of barbaric crimes, but he flaunted them at law enforcement, unburdening his conscience with confessions and then recanting those confessions without repercussions. Eventually, his tangled web of lies began to break apart as his veneer of normalcy eroded and his unspeakable horrors came to light. 1962 was known as the swinging 60s. Amidst the harmonies of the United States chart-topping Big Girls Don't Cry by the Four Seasons, the United Kingdom's return to sender by Elvis Presley, and the gripping tale of Lawrence of Arabia on the silver screen, Larry Dwayne Hall emerged into the world alongside his twin brother, Gary Wayne Hall. Born to a 40-year-old World War II seasoned U.S. Navy veteran, Robert Roland Hall, and his third wife, 33-year-old Ara Bernice Flora, the Halls were Sagittarius twins, a sign shared with their father in the quaint town of Wabash, Indiana. Larry's entry into life was marked by a stint in the neonatal intensive care unit, a consequence of a rare monochorionic pregnancy where oxygen deprivation haunted him after an unsettling feeding incident in the womb by his twin, Gary. Set against the backdrop of a rapidly changing world, while John F. Kennedy was president, where tailored skirts and Harrington jackets were the fashion du jour, Larry's early life unfolded in the sparsely populated city of Wabash, Indiana, with a geography of just 9.1 square miles, most recognizable as the first city in the world to be electrically lit. Lassie and The Gumby Show were popular during this time. The Halls were no strangers to military service, as even Ara's first husband and her oldest son's dad, Charles F. Clough, was a World War II and U.S. Army veteran. Ara's oldest son, Elmer Eugene Clough, a Capricorn born on January 7, 1946, was 15 years older than both Larry and Gary. Robert Hall, Larry and Gary's father, served as a sexton for Fall Cemetery, and their mother, Ara, was a stay-at-home mother. A sexton is a fancy term for a gravedigger, and typically the role requires the sexton to maintain both the church and the cemetery, often living on the grounds. Both Larry and Gary grew up surrounded by the historical echoes of their small town, with a few famous people and businesses getting their start there, like race car driver Jimmy DeWalt, country singer Crystal Gale, Mark Honeywell, founder of the Honeywell Corporation, and others. The twins were Civil War reenactment actors, but Larry Hall really loved it the most. As with most psychotic deviants, their perversions typically begin to present in their youth, and this was no different for Larry Hall. Beneath the seemingly idyllic surface of Wabash, Hall's adolescence took a dark turn as he suffered the brunt of bullying as he was teased for being slower than his peers. He suffered from a speech impediment had frequent nightmares, and continued bedwetting during his time at Westward Elementary School. Hall's environment incubated antisocial tendencies. And then to add fuel to the fire, Hall regularly assisted his father as a sexton, gradually desensitizing Larry to being around dead bodies and handling the dead at a crucial time in his psychological development during his puberty phase. This would set a stage for a chilling metamorphosis, as it is suspected that Larry's first exposure to the opposite sex was through the exposure of cadavers and corpses. Suspected in petty crimes, including arson and vandalism, 
Larry, and even his brother Gary, remained oblivious to the impending revelation that Hall would evolve into a sexual sadist, a necrophiliac, and ultimately a serial killer, despite his logged IQ of just 80. As Larry's dark secret began to unravel, many of the town's residents echoed the sentiment that the seemingly odd and slow young man could never be the meticulous and calculated murderer of the missing women. No one could imagine Larry being responsible for such unspeakable horrors. From their experience, Hall wasn't outwardly violent and often spoke in a soft, non-threatening tone. The town categorized the strange Hall as harmless, but they were far from right. They were dead wrong. In a story that seems to fit crookedly in a 1960s picture-perfect small American town, Larry Dwayne Hall's gradual descent into darkness pulls listeners into a gripping narrative where the line between being a normal person and being a monster becomes blurred, leaving a long wake of bodies as he toured the nation from one Civil War reenactment scene to another. Let's start off by talking about Larry and Gary's just the birth. So they came into the world at a time when, I don't know, we were thinking about apple pie and like, you know, the shows on TV were wholesome and like people didn't curse in public. It was a different time. I wonder if that's what it was really like or that's just what we assume it was like. Yeah, I don't know. I wasn't alive back then. <laughs> that's, how, that's how the movies make it look. <laughs> it's pretty funny. I don't know if that was quite the stage back then, but obviously that's what we're kind of led to believe during that time period. And I know that this particular disorder that their mother had while she was pregnant with them is pretty rare with twins. And what happens is if they're sharing anything between them, because they're identical twins, Yeah. typically identical twins are in the same amniotic sac. And so they're like, they can hold hands or whatever in there. There's no membrane separating them typically. Most times, well, I shouldn't say most times, sometimes twins can have different placentas or um, they're being fed differently from the placentas. And then sometimes they share. And so when they share, sometimes one baby can get fed more than the other baby. In their case, um, this had to do with like blood and oxygen. And so what was happening was with this particular disorder, you could receive, you couldn't give. And so when his brother was taking what he was taking, Larry was basically left with whatever was left. And so if you, mm. if you can kind of picture if um, someone puts their hands around your neck and they're cutting off your oxygen and how long you can last without oxygen, it's almost like depriving that other baby of whatever those essential things are for certain periods of time. And it's going to impact them. And yeah. more than likely, it's going to impact them as, as far as their learning capabilities. And so it's no surprise to me that there was a difference kind of in there. Like I would guess that his brother's IQ is probably higher, even if it's not significantly higher that it is higher. And also that he didn't have some of the psychological impacts that Larry did. So I yeah. think there was an imbalance there. Well, also, and to that point, the point you just made just now, they say that when people are developed, it's a matter of genetics and environment. Right. And so if genetically Larry was deficient genetically due to this, this syndrome, his experience 
would have been different than his brothers. Right. He would have been picked on where his brother wasn't. Uh, he wouldn't have had a social life where his brother would have had a social life. So his experience would have been completely different. And then his coping mechanisms would have been different as well because his IQ was lower. Right. So that all that makes him a different person altogether, even though they're twins. Right. And I know that in some of the interviews that his brother's given since, he talks about, you know, his brother being teased in school. He talks yeah. about um, there being a definite difference between them and people being like, well, y'all are twins, you know, like, yeah, you guys look, look a lot alike, but you guys don't act the same. Like you seem like right. you're, you know, different in that particular um, situation. A lot of times one of those babies will actually end up passing away in the womb during this process because the other baby is taking everything. So, yeah. So he's born, grows up at a time where I'm assuming neighbors talk to each other. People were friendly. They grew up in a very small town of nine miles. So I'm assuming everyone knew everyone and he was not seen as a threat. He was seen as a, like an innocent, weird child, like with some disability that everybody kind of felt a little sorry for. Everybody kind of like overlooked him as being any type of a deviant. And I know that there was instances where he would like try to talk to girls, but they would like, you know, they just took it as he just, he's just weird. Right. And you know, where they lived actually. So because their dad was a sexton, they actually lived in a decent sized house yeah. and in a large space of a land um, because the cemetery and everything was there. So there wasn't people that lived like really close to them either. So they didn't have like this couple blocks of a bunch of kids where they were constantly interacting with other right. kids and people who lived in there them talked about, like I've actually seen people who are obviously all grown up now who grew up with them who talk about, yeah, he was really weird. And, you know, of course, now that you know what all he did, you're saying a whole lot more. But back then, everybody thought of him as, yeah, he's a little odd, but he's not a murderer. You know, right. Like, they didn't even think that he had the mental capacity to even like, there's no way you can think he could have done it. And obviously, they were proven wrong. Yeah. And it's easy to underestimate someone who doesn't seem to have the mental capacity to really plan something out real deliberately and like, you know, then cover it up and then lie about it. Like, he didn't have the mental capacity that most people assumed would be needed in order to be this deliberate psychopath that was going around killing these girls. Right. And what I think people didn't realize at the time is the environment that Larry grew up in and the time periods in which he experienced certain things. Like people didn't know those things. Right. And so their father was an alcoholic. He was abusive and he actually was fired from his job there as a sexton. And they ended up having to move into a very small home after that because he was burying people in the wrong graves. And honestly, I don't know how you do that because it's not like you have a whole bunch of people dying to get in there. You actually do have people <laughs> dying to get in there. <laughs> <laughs> but like not all at the same time. So like, it's not like you have 10 bodies and you made a mistake. Like, how did you bury somebody in the wrong grave? And I think this is how. So when he was around his puberty age, his dad had him robbing graves. They would dig up these graves. They'd go in, they'd steal the jewelry off of the people who were buried. And somehow in that process, I think maybe he's been drinking. Larry's being exposed to this. He's seeing naked women. He's touching them. He's, you know, those kinds of things right around his puberty time. And so now this kind of death and this puberty are kind of evolving at the same time. That's a really dangerous stage for 
somebody who's going through puberty because now they tend to associate those things with one another. And right. so I think that was in his case, I think that's kind of what occurred around that time frame. Right, right. Now, something that also occurs during this kind of teen area, um, a lot of times around that, I would say actually after puberty, somewhere around 15 or so, typically when you hear about whether they're sex offenders or murderers, serial killers, you hear about kind of their first kind of serious or more serious crimes happening around that time frame. And I know that Larry's brother talks about a point in time where there was like, 200 dead rabbits that they came home to that mm. Larry had killed that were in these cages that they had. And he just like, it was like, it was a huge mess, but like the family didn't talk about it. They didn't say anything about it. You know, this didn't come out until after everything came out, right. but there was definitely some lead up to all of this that just nobody knew about. Right. And I would also think that during those times, you don't have the internet, you don't have the ability to research, you don't really know what's wrong with your kid per se, and you may just attribute his behavior to his mental capacity. Oh, he doesn't know any better, or he just doesn't know, like, you know, he's just acting out, he's just not that smart. And so that might be part of why they just kind of brush that off. I don't know. I'd be pretty like one rabbit. All right. Maybe, but like 200 rabbits, I'd be a little like, (laughs) he didn't get it after the first, the second, the third, the fourth. Like he just kept on going. (laughs) 99 rabbits. (laughs) That's funny. Where did they find this passion for reenactments in terms of civil war? Where did that come from? Was it due to the military service of the parents or, or what created that drive to participate in civil war reenactments? I don't really know. I just know that in their area, somebody asked them about doing it at some point in time. And I guess Larry kind of had the mentality that when he got into something, like if he kind of started to show a passion for something, like he really dug into it. Like it really, like he wanted to know everything he could about it. He really wanted to be the best he could at it. And so when they first started doing it, he just really got engrossed into it and fell in love with it and wanted to do it all the time. And so they were doing them all the time. And it was also, you know, they're twins are the same age. It's almost like they're each other's best friend. And so they really had this very close connected relationship and they were spending all their time together, honestly. In the autumn of 1993, The quiet town of Georgetown, Illinois, was shattered by the disappearance of 15-year-old Jessica Lynn Roach, known as Jessie. A high school sophomore with dreams of becoming a jet pilot, Jessie embarked on a routine bike ride down Mill Street on September 20th. The last sighting of her walking next to her bike and smiling came from her sister Mindy at 3.30 p.m. However, when Mindy returned home from a store run, Jesse's bike lay abandoned in the street and Jesse was gone. The mystery deepened when, 42 days later, a farmer's combine harvester in Perryville, Indiana, revealed Jesse's mutilated body in a cornfield. Autopsy results exposed a fractured jaw, signs of strangulation, and evidence of sexual assault. The investigation took a haunting turn when an eyewitness recalled a van matching the description of one owned by 31-year-old Larry Dwayne Hall, seen near the cornfield on the day of Jesse's disappearance. Calls about stalking incidents involving a similar van, but this time with a tag number, began shining a light squarely at Larry Hall. However, when Vermilion County Sheriff's Department Detective Gary Miller reached out to the local police department in Wabash, Indiana, he encountered a puzzling response. An officer who had grown up with Hall painted him as harmless, albeit 
odd individual despite suspicions of arson and theft. This perplexing case serves as a chilling window into Hall's potential modus operandi with numerous alleged victims connected to him based on proximity to their disappearances and shared characteristics of being found strangled and sexually assaulted. As internet searches unveil varying estimates ranging from 35 to potentially over 50 murders, the complexity of Hall's crimes becomes a web of uncertainty with Jesse's tragic fate serving as the one that ultimately led to his imprisonment. When we peer into the darkness that is Larry Dwayne Hall's psyche, we can see early seeds of evil and perversion being sown early. As the shattered fragments of his broken family and the alcoholic storm that was his father left an indelible imprint, Hall's formative years were marred by a volatile cocktail of emotional and physical abuse, exacerbated by gruesome acts of grave robbing during a crucial period of puberty and sexual development. The convergence of deviant behavior and trauma in his upbringing became the ominous foundation for the horrors that lay ahead. As Hall's alleged criminal journey unfolded between the ages of 18 and 32, a chilling dichotomy emerged within him. A meticulously organized approach paired with disorganized traits, his below average IQ of 80 coupled with a diagnosis of anxiety and depression hinted at cognitive limitations that coexisted with a disturbing capacity for meticulous planning. The scars of cruel bullying in his school years coupled with the visceral pain inflicted by his father molded Hall into an individual marked by increasingly antisocial tendencies. Between 1980 and 1994, 14 years, Hall's reign of terror cast a shadow over more than 50 women, spanning from young girls as young as 10 years old to college students on the brink of independence. His victims, a mosaic of white and Hispanic backgrounds. They fell prey to a methodical predator adept at abduction, rape, torture, stalking, and murder. Hall's confession to over 30 abductions and murders though later recanted, unveiled a complex psyche fueled by a sinister thirst for power and control. The chilling acts of binding, strangling, mutilating, and necrophilia painted a portrait of a sadistic personality underscored by a history of torturing animals. Locked away with a life sentence and no possibility of parole, Larry Dwayne Hall stands as a haunting figure, a man propelled by a troubled past and a twisted psyche, leaving behind a legacy of unspeakable horror, unanswered questions, and a yearning for closure among those touched by his malevolence. For many, the labyrinth of Hall's mind blurs the lines between victim and perpetrator, and the quest for understanding becomes a relentless pursuit of the chilling truths that linger in the shadows. As we talk about Larry Hall and we go back to the victims, the victim that we highlight, Jesse Roach, a high school sophomore who wanted to be a jet pilot. This is 1993. So it's important to understand that this is the last of the, his known victims that has been identified. And that's important because his crime spree has spanned from the time that he was about 18 years old until the time he's about 32. And you're talking about approximately somewhere around 50 missing women 
all scattered throughout all these close proximity states where he's going out and he's doing these civil war reenactments. What do you make of his serial confessions? I think that some people could see it as him being kind of strategic in his approach of trying to seem like it couldn't be him or trying to seem like, well, can we even trust? Because there was law enforcement that didn't believe that they could even trust his confessions. But the problem was, is that he would give little details that weren't released to the public, which told you this is the guy. Like there's no way he knows this information if he wasn't there. Right. So there's been some people actually that have speculated if his brother was part of his crimes, if his brother was present during the crimes, helped him during the crimes. And that may be something that we never know. He was questioned. I don't know if he took a lie detector test, anything of that nature. And he's come out and he's spoken a lot. And to my knowledge, his brother actually helped in not getting him to do a a lot of things. But his brother is somebody who assisted in helping him to come forward in some aspects. He still to this day has recanted just about every confession that he's ever made for anybody. So, So I have a little bit of a different theory when it comes to the confessions. And I think part of it is... I think his confessions, from my perspective, and, and if I was speculating what I would think the confessions are, the confessions are a way for him to come clean. For example, if I stole my dad's car, I might come and say, Dad, I stole your car. And he might go out there and see it's still out there. And I could be like, nah, I didn't really steal your car. I really did it. And I'm telling right. on myself to clear my conscience. Because now I told you. Right. But now I'm saying, well, but I was just kidding. I'm just joking. Or I, I didn't really steal your car. If you were to come back and go, hey, you did steal my car, then I would be like, well, I told you I did, but you didn't believe me. So I think part of the confessions was his, in his mind, in his, you know, his diminished capacity of mindset, it was kind of a way for him to clear his conscience of what he had done. I know we watched the movie um, and there is a movie called Blackbird and it's a very good movie and it's a very good depiction of this particular serial killer's life. If you're interested in this case and you want to know more about how he confessed and got caught and how he got in prison for life, it's a very complex story and it's a it's a good series on... I think it's on... Was it on Tubi? It was on Apple TV. Okay. And it's a series, so it's a couple episodes. So Blackbird, I do want to talk about that for just a second because I feel like it's a big piece of how he ended up getting not caught because he, he did get caught of his own doing but how they were able to keep him in prison because he was recanting his confession. And so, and because he had done it so many times that it kind of became that whole, you know, like, can we really believe him? Like it was starting to become, you know, like we're saying a serial confessor. So the FBI actually enlisted a gentleman who was sent to prison. It was over drugs. It was over selling drugs and they made a deal with them and they said, we're going to offer you your freedom. If you can get Larry Dwayne Hall to confess to these murders or at least well not not really confess but provide us something that will allow for us to keep him in prison so that he does not murder any more women like we believe he murdered more but we need something and so they moved him to the prison where larry Dwayne hall was and so that's what this series is about and something that i can say about this series that i really appreciated is that a lot of true crime series that are out there are very loosely based on whatever true crime it's talking about. It's made for TV. They add stuff in. They might remove some things. They might make things kind of over embellish things. This particular series was so 
close to the actual story that it just made it that much better to me personally. There's a couple books that the guy wrote about it. He did get out of prison. Um, This was why he got out of prison, but there's definitely some ups and downs in that story. We'll just kind of have you on the edge of your seat when um, he's going through this process because it wasn't an easy process for him to get to know Larry, to befriend him because Larry was an odd individual. And the guy who plays him in this series does a really good job of acting out his mannerisms and how he was responding. And so it allows for you to see what the detectives were experiencing when he was confessing, because it was like he was confessing, but then he'd be like, ah, almost like he couldn't even remember the whole thing. Like he was remembering bits and pieces, but like he, but like you were saying, he wanted to get it off his chest. Now, as we get into Larry's psyche and we started thinking about his mindset and, and how he thinks, and, and maybe what makes him a serial killer and a serial perpetrator against women and girls. I think a big part of his diminished capacity in terms of his mental capacity had to do with his rationalization of just raging out. And his brother talks about in the movie, there's scenes where his brother talks about exposing him to like a prostitute at some point. And, and when he did that, the reaction that Larry had in regards to her was to become violent, sexually violent. And he, he thought that was odd and strange. And I think that kind of stems from his exposure to the corpse and, the, you know, what he found to be normal sex act, you know, for him in his diminished capacity. I agree with that. And I would venture to say from... The different things that I've heard from people who have spoken out on social media and different threads about knowing the family or knowing Larry and living near them and being exposed to how the family was just the family as a whole. I would venture to say that there was some interesting things with the father as well. Just based on the things that that I've read that different people have said, I would venture to say that the dad had some issues. And I wouldn't be surprised if during that time frame where they were robbing graves and where they were digging people up and they were taking things and where Larry was being exposed to all these different naked bodies. I wouldn't be surprised if there was some things with the dad, like maybe the dad doing, maybe had some necrophilia going on and maybe Larry being exposed to that. Or if Larry was experimenting at that time frame because he didn't have a girl who could reject him because he was used to that. Obviously somebody who's not alive can't reject you. And so I don't know if he was experimenting at that time But I think that there was just multiple different dynamics going on, both while he was growing up and during his puberty that really played into that. And it makes you wonder with his brother if he had any issues. He ended up getting married. He's had kids from all outward appearances. It seems like he's done well. And, you know, of course, it's been years now since Larry has, you know, gone to prison and their relationship has suffered you know, as a result of how things ended and different things that came out. But it seems like his brother went on to lead a fairly normal life. But there are a lot of people that have questioned whether or not his brother was innocent. Yeah. There was evidence found in the van when they pulled Larry over in the van that matched some stuff from at least one of the crimes that looked like material that you would use committing some of the crimes that Obviously, he was suspected of having committed. They found a missing persons poster for um, one of the girls that had been, 
you know, that her circumstances were very similar to the one that ultimately imprisoned him. So all those different things together really kind of sealed his fate. But him staying in prison wouldn't have been possible without the gentleman who made the deal. That wasn't easy for him because in a prison environment, you're still considered a snitch. And so that was a hard thing for this guy. But as he got to know Larry, you can tell that there was a struggle because he knew he was dangerous and he didn't want him to be hurting women and killing women. So that was a struggle for him. We draw startling parallels between Larry Dwayne Hall and alleged serial killers like Israel Keys, an unsettling reminder that darkness can lurk beneath a seemingly unsuspecting facade. Through extensive research into the profiles of captured serial killers, we challenge preconceptions about the correlation between low IQ and the capacity for sadistic acts, revealing that the most unsuspecting individuals can harbor the darkest tendencies. Hall's chilling recipe for violence began before his entrance into the world, shaped by medical circumstances beyond his and his mother's control, inviting listeners to grapple with conflicting emotions, sympathy for a troubled past, or skepticism towards a potential act. As we close this particular case, listeners are left to ponder the paradox that is Larry Dwayne Hall and his twin brother. Is Hall a mere serial confessor weaving a web of deceit, or does he truly embody the chilling profile of a serial murderer? Is he a wrongfully accused serial killer or a cunning manipulator? The echoes of his haunting narrative linger, challenging our understanding of the thin line between facade and malevolence. What lies beneath the surface and what remains unsaid leaves us with a sense of intrigue, urging listeners to contemplate the complexities of a case that blurs the boundaries between truth and deception. that's a wrap on today's investigation fellow detectives if you found this episode both enlightening and captivating then please subscribe to our podcast show and our patreon leave a review and hit that like button share our podcast with others and engage with us on our website and social media platforms you can find us on all major podcast platforms as well as our website at www.bodyofcrimepodcast.com where you can access all of our episodes and bonus content including valuable resources By expanding our community, we believe we can make a greater impact in our pursuit of truth and in shedding light on crucial cases. If there's a case that you'd like for us to cover or a personal story you'd like to share, please don't hesitate and contact us through our website. We always welcome your feedback and suggestions. Until next time, stay sharp and thank you for tuning in to the Body of Crime Podcast. Podcast. Bye.